Soldiers! You are now about to leave the shores of Kentucky. Many of you can boast that she gave you birth. She is indeed dear to us all. Kentuckians stand high in the estimation of our common country. Our brothers in arms who have gone before us to the scene of action have acquired a fame. A fame which should never be forgotten by you. A fame worthy of your emulation. I feel conscious you would rather see your country no more than return to it under the impression that by any act of yours the high character of Kentucky had fallen. To support this reputation purchased by valor and by blood, you must with fortitude meet the hardships and discharge the duties of soldiers. Discipline and subordination mark the real soldier and are indeed the soul of an army. In every situation, therefore, the most perfect subordination, the most rigid discharge of duty will be expected from all. Partiality or injustice shall be shown to none. I have the most perfect confidence in your attachment and support through every difficulty we may encounter. It is upon you, it is upon your subordination and discipline I rely for the successful issue of the present campaign. Without this confidence and support, we shall achieve nothing, nothing honorable or useful. The same destiny awaits us both. That which exalts or sinks you in the estimation of your country will produce to me her approbation or condemnation. Feeling this same common interest, the first wishes of my heart are that the present campaign should prove honorable to all and use to our country. Hello. Welcome to the Foot of the Rapids, a history podcast of stories from the War of 1812. And those commanding words were the general orders for April 7, 1813 written under the hand of Brigadier General Green Clay of Kentucky. A great name from the war, Green Clay. But hopefully, that's how this little show will always go, using diary entries, memoirs, letters home, to relate some basic ideas in the story of the war and the era. And today, we will continue our discussion of that all-important element to any war effort, recruitment. At the dawn of the second year of the war, 1813, another brutal and shocking American defeat caused a second spike in the call for enlistments, particularly in Kentucky. The Battle of the River Raisin in January, well north into the Michigan Territory, was at first a successful forward movement for the United States. American General James Winchester moved north from the foot of the rapids and liberated a French community from British and Indian forces on January 18th. He was determined to hold this advanced position and refuel his small army corps there. But four days later, the Allied army returned and attacked in the winter darkness 
just as the American drummer was beating the reveille. The unprotected regulars on the American right buckled and retreated into the river. The Kentuckians on the left flank managed to hold but were surrendered when General Winchester himself was captured south of town. British Colonel Henry Proctor, believing William Henry Harrison was not far away with reinforcements, withdrew into the forests to the north, taking only the wounded he could carry. The following day, January 23rd, some native warriors returned to the battle site and began exacting, some say, a repressed vengeance by brutalizing the American wounded in the ruins of Frenchtown. The defeat, the capture, the surrender, the rumors of forceful and inhumane treatment of fellow Kentuckians caused anguish and rage along the bluegrass home front. Then Governor Isaac Shelby said, This melancholy event has filled the state with mourning, and every feeling heart bleeds with anguish. In consequence of the intelligence contained in these dispatches, the legislature passed an act authorizing the organization of 3,000 militia for any term not exceeding six months, but for any service of the United States. Should we encounter the enemy, remember the dreadful fate of your butchered brothers at the River Raisin, that British treachery produced their slaughter. The justice of our cause, with the aid of an approving providence, will be sure guarantee of our success. Green Clay, Brigadier General. Remember the Raisin became a battle hymn for Kentuckians for the remainder of the campaign. And Private Thomas Christian, whom we heard from at the extreme opening of the previous episode, would have been standing in the chilly spring ranks listening to these impassioned orders from his commanding officer. But not all citizens were as enthusiastic about military service. States were required to provide a certain quota of soldiers for the war effort when the call came. If they couldn't reach these numbers through spirited volunteerism, then they fell to a draft. In early 1813, the dreadful lots began being drawn. We move to Ohio and rely on the words of Alexander Bourne. As the six-month term of the three brigades of militia then out would expire about the 1st of March, another brigade of Ohio militia was ordered out in February 1813. In this detachment, I was drafted as a common soldier on Sunday evening and ordered to march the next morning. I was the 17th man in the first class, and in the first draft for three men, I was drawn. This was occasioned by the running away and hiding in the woods of 13 or 14 men who stood before me on the roll. My friends all said I should not march as a private soldier. They could get me a commission in the regular army, and that I ought not to go as a private. I told them there was not time to obtain a commission. I was ordered to march immediately. That I did not intend to choose fighting as a profession, but I had been called out by the laws of my country to defend that country. That my father had fought for his country in the War of Independence, 
and that I would not shrink from my duty, but march to the place of rendezvous and trust to Providence for further direction. Then they said I should hire a substitute, which was often done, but I refused all substitution. Although a man came to me and offered to serve my six month term for $90. As the Americans rushed to refill their ranks for another season of combat and stabilize the Western Front in Northern Ohio, British, now General Proctor, of the Western Army or the Reich Division in Upper Canada, was keenly aware that his success at Frenchtown had been in great part due to the contribution of American Indian warriors attached to his army, largely led by Wyandotte Chief Roundhead. This inspired Governor General Prevost to proceed with a hatched plan of reinforcing Proctor with an Indian army instead of sending him his demanded redcoats from further downriver. And so begins what is, I think, my favorite episode in the War of 1812, the recruitment of the far western tribes of the North American frontier. It was in June that I saw one of the wildest and most grand and beautiful Indian sights that I had ever beheld. Colonel Dixon of the British Indian Department had been on the Upper Mississippi in Green Bay country collecting Indians to fight for them. About 12 or 1,500 warriors came down the river one very beautiful morning, all in birch canoes with the British flag flying, singing their war songs, and as they approached the headquarters of General Proctor at Sandwich, at a signal given, they commenced firing their guns and turned the bows of their canoes towards Sandwich or Canada shore, landing in beautiful order one after the other. They were met upon landing by a part of the 41st with their bands and colors flying. The Indians forming in squads of 50, each squad painted differently all over their bodies. They thus advanced, escorted by the troops, dancing and singing their war dance until they reached the house of General Proctor, where a speech was made to the general, in which they said all they asked was to get a chance to fight the Long Knives at Fort Meigs. All they wanted to show their British father the bravery of the Indian warrior. John Hunt, near Detroit. The far northwestern nations of Lakes Michigan and Superior came down under the leadership and great influence of one of their most respected members, Robert Dixon, a Scottish-born fur trader who had married a Sioux woman. Governor General Prevost had appointed Dixon to the British Indian Department in early 1813 for the purpose of securing this great, untapped resource of fighting prowess. American Indian numbers would reach their zenith with an armed force of nearly 4,000 that high summer, outnumbering the British regulars of the Western Army nearly six to one. And what an awesome spectacle it must have been for them. These new tribes included members of the Sioux, Menominee, Fox, Sauk, and Winnebago, joining the Ottawa, Ojibwa, Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Wyandotte, and a few Shawnee already fighting in Michigan and beyond. These new warriors had yet to feel the encroachment of the Americans. Indeed, they had scarcely ever seen a white person. 
of them, even General Proctor was moved to say a few very picturesque lines. The encampment of this large body of warriors with their women and children presented a singularly wild and imposing spectacle. They were perhaps a more numerous assemblage of Indian nations than had ever united in arms in a common cause, and the peculiar customs and appearance of the various tribes added not a little to the interest of the scene. By night, the effect was almost indescribable. The blazing fire throwing its red glare upon its swarthy figures which danced or regrouped in indolence around it. The sound of the war song, the shout, the yell, strangely varied at intervals by the plaintive cadence of the Indian flute or the hollow tone of the Indian drum. The dark foliage of the forest slumbering in the Canadian night and half hidden half revealed as the light of the fire shot up to heaven or sunk into gloomy embers. Through his efforts, Robert Dixon's Western warriors continued to receive support from the British High Command, even following their reverses that summer at Fort Meigs, Fort Stevenson, and the Battle of Lake Erie. This support made possible the later capture of Prairie de Chen on the Upper Mississippi in midsummer 1814 and the successful defense of Fort Mackinac in August. For the final year of the war, we will change theaters from the north moving further east and south. But we find, despite the change of scenery, the needs and demands for fighting men remains unchanged. Despite the United States Congress increasing the authorized strength of the Army to 62,500 in the winter of 1813 to 1814, recruitment only brought its strength up to 40,000. Yet these new troops continually found their way northward to the Canadian border. This left the communities along the shore of the Mid-Atlantic to scramble to their own defenses. Sea captains on the Chesapeake chafed against the desire to put to sea for want of sailors and men. Department heads argued and fought among themselves to secure crews. Plans were even drawn up to convert ships essentially into shore batteries as there was only enough manpower to employ the guns and not the sails. And despite the overwhelming might of the Royal Navy, Rear Admiral Colburn had difficulty in securing all the tasks he was charged with completing in the Chesapeake without more men. He fell upon the plot to recruit among the enslaved people and refugees from war-endangered coastal communities. This for the dual purpose of strengthening his own numbers and weakening the production capabilities generated by this workforce of his American enemies. He received the proper wording from his superior officer, Admiral Alexander Cochran. I send you 1,000 copies of a proclamation to be circulated, which I hope will induce many of the Negroes to resort to the squadron, 
or to the places that may be taken possession of in the Chesapeake. A proclamation, whereas it has been represented to me that many persons now resident in the United States have expressed a desire to withdraw therefrom with a view to entering into His Majesty's service or of being received as free settlers into some of His Majesty's colonies. This, therefore, to give notice that all those who may be disposed to emigrate from the United States will, with their families, be received on board His Majesty's ships or vessels of war, or at the military posts that may be established upon or near the coast of the United States, when they will have their choice of either entering into His Majesty's sea or land forces, or of being sent as free settlers to the British possessions in North America or the West Indies, where they will meet with due encouragement. Given under my hand at Bermuda, God save the King. As an aside, if your interest lies in hearing more of the African Americans who volunteered as free men to the British, there are certainly some great stories there material enough indeed for an entire episode of this program. So please stay tuned to the future. They will be coming. When we believed our country was in danger of being invaded, we felt only the noble desire to increase the number of women who have distinguished themselves by noble deeds. Inspired by the sublime example they left us, as well as by the desire to aid our country's courageous defenders, we would have won our enemies' admiration by telling them we knew how to combine the advantages people concede that we have, high spirits and courage. If the presumption of the English had been limitless until now, it is because they had never attempted to land in Louisiana. They were going to find the obstacle to their audacity on the banks of the Mississippi. Intrepid warriors, in order to defend our country, you sacrificed without hesitation your dearest interests. You left your wives and your children. You tore yourselves away from the mothers or sisters of whom you were the only support. You risked with rapture the lives which are so precious to them. How flattering it is for us to call you our countrymen. And you, invincible Tennesseans, who suffering from hunger, fatigue, and the inclemency of the season, ran forth to the battlefield and swiftly spread dismay into the enemy's ranks like so many Achilles, except the admiration that your heroism deserves. And you, illustrious and magnanimous Jackson, filled the adversary's soul with terror and the hearts of Louisiana women with gratitude. Your name will forever be pronounced by us with veneration and fame will publicize your sublime conduct everywhere. Josephine Favreau Yes, perhaps the most remarkable, or even dubious, 
assemblage of recruited soldiers, comes out of the Southwest. When Andrew Jackson arrived in the city of New Orleans in December 1814, he found the city completely undefended and the citizens rather nonchalant. The aggregation of backwoods militiamen Jackson was able to assemble for that defense was somewhat astounding by military standards and reminds us a little of peasant armies in medieval Europe. Derisively called the Dirty Shirts by the British, these late war men mustered in from the state militias of Kentucky and Tennessee, what existed of the Mississippi militia, locally inspired men from the parishes of Louisiana, U.S. Army regulars and artillerymen, free men of color recruited by a Haitian refugee, Choctaw Indians, and yes, even known pirates from the Barataria Swamp. And let's not overlook the fact that the uniformed battalion of Orleans volunteers showed up with no less than 25 musicians in the band. It was said by some that their military discipline consisted of the orders to forward march and to fire. It would be all they needed, apparently. But we will rely on only the words of the general himself to carry the remainder of the hour. First, an address to his fellow Tennesseans to join his ranks. Fellow soldiers, promptitude in the hour of danger is the best evidence of your patriotism. You are, therefore, requested to be ready at a moment's warning. The clouds of war thicken around our country, and it requires all your energies to sustain the difficulties that surround us. You are required to pay great attention to discipline. With it, every glory awaits your arms. Without it, an army is no better than a mob. Every justice that has been extended to others will be extended to the volunteers by the government. This fully meets your wishes and expectations and with which your general knows you are content. Should the government again summon us to the field, let us evince our attachment to it by the alacrity to obey the call. The country to the south is inviting let us consolidate it as part of our union. The soil which now lies waste and uncultivated may be converted into rich harvest fields to supply the wants of millions. And finally, his address to the city of New Orleans itself. Good citizens, you must rally around me in this emergency. Cease all differences and divisions and unite with me in patriotic resolve to save this city from dishonor and disaster, which a presumptuous enemy threatens to inflict upon it. Frenchmen, Spaniards, men of color, Citizens of Louisiana, fellow citizens of every description, you must stand together and show your heroism for a country blessed with every gift of nature, for property, for life, 
and for liberty, dearer than all, against an enemy who vows a war of vengeance and desolation, proclaimed and marked by cruelty, lust, and horrors unknown to civilized nations. Well, all, I hope that was worth your while. It was fun collecting all these passages. I hope you have a more colorful understanding of recruitment during the War of 1812. There are certainly other excerpts that could have been used and other things that could have been said, but we'll leave the subject for now. So thanks for listening. Huzzah.